morning. Good morning. Uh, you are out there. Um, this morning, we're starting a new sermon series that I'm actually really excited about. Um, this sermon series we're entitling DNA, Living Out of Our Uniqueness and Into Our Call. DNA is probably something, if you remember that far back, that you got in middle school or maybe even high school biology. Um, I'm going to pronounce this really terribly, so for all the scientists out there, I apologize, but DNA apparently is deoxyribonucleic acid, right? Um, what DNA is is a self-replicating material. So what we want to, oh, I got a couple of thumbs up. Yeah. Whew. Mr. Conway would be really proud of me right now. I should probably send him an email. All right. So DNA is self-replicating material. So it's not just that, oh, we all have DNA, but the idea of DNA itself is that it's supposed to reproduce. It's present in all living organisms. It's the main constituent of chromosomes. And the basic idea of DNA that I want you guys to hold on to is it carries the genetic information that makes you you and it's supposed to reproduce, all right? So you're gonna have to hold those two in, in, in your mind as we go through this series. That, that this is the core essence of who we are, this is the core essence of what we're supposed to be reproducing. Um, the second thing about DNA, when it comes to outside of living organisms, when it comes to bodies of people, organizations, or in our case, a church and community, what it is is it's the fundamental or basic distinctive characteristics or qualities, right? So when we say this is HBIG DNA, we're saying this is who we are. So as I thought about how we wanted to flesh that out, what we came up with is this is who we are, this is our DNA, but this is what makes us unique. How do we walk in that? But this is also what God has called us to do. How do we walk in that? If you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 7, um, verse 53, and then we'll be reading to 8.1. Um, the first uh, core value or h value that I'm going to be preaching on is grace. And it reads like this. It says, we are a grace-based church. Therefore, we share and model the grace of God in our church and to our neighbors through loving relationships. And when I thought about this core value, what I came up with as our tagline for this morning is simply something like this. We are graced to grace. We are graced to grace. Starting in John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Verse 53 starts like this. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, 8, 1. A two, at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using the this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning for your grace.
the grace of your Holy Spirit that even turns us to you, the grace of your Holy Spirit that convicts us that we need you, the grace of your Holy Spirit that brings us into relationship with you by introducing Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, your grace that you so loved us, you came to this world, that you who lived in radiance took on skin, that you went to Calvary to die for our sins, that you've been raised again. Father God, we thank you for your grace, your grace that resurrects Jesus, your grace that resurrects us, your grace that sends your spirit, your grace that sends us, your grace that lives in this world by the power of your spirit, and by, yes, we, your children, your church. In your holy and precious name, amen. So grace is an interesting word. It's another one of these Christian words that, that we know. Grace is a name that, that we, 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 it's something we say in our prayers. It's something that, that in the songs that we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Grace is a name we love to give to our daughters. And in some places, our hospitals, in some cultures, it's even how we address the, the royalty, your grace. Grace is also something we say before the meals sometimes. Grace is something that, that if we've lived long enough, we see people fall from. Whether it's our leaders or politicians or, or whoever, our stars, they fall from grace. Grace is also something that we hope that we have. We hope that all of us are, are seen as people who are gracious. We hope that all of us are living lives where we're grateful. And we teach the next generation or, or those we have uh, influence over that they should be grateful. When we go out to eat, you know, hopefully we remember that most waiters might make less than $2 an hour and we leave a little bit of gratuity. Grace. This is another thing I learned about grace this week, and the musicians will kill me on this one, but I'm trying my best, right? But I also learned there's something in music called grace notes. And the idea of grace notes is that it's not necessarily part of the piece, but it's putting in to the, the music to add a little bit of spice, a little bit of flavor, right? So I thought about this, about how, like, you know, sometimes the steak is real good, but you just need a little bit of dash of salt. That's what a grace note is. The steak is so good, but you got your salt, you even a little bit better, just a little bit. Watch the cholesterol, people. But the thing about grace is that all these different aspects of grace only highlight this big thing we're trying to say. All these different aspects of grace, uh, Philip Yancey calls it the last best word or the last great word, in that we use it so much, but all these ways that we use it just highlight this simple thing. So our question this morning becomes, but, but, but what is grace? Desmond Tutu, a South African cleric and theologian, says, In the Bible, we first encounter God when he sides with a bunch of slaves against a powerful Pharaoh, an act of grace freely given. So from from Tutu, we learn that, that grace is something that comes from God, but it's freely given to us. It's freely given to the disadvantaged. It's freely given to the weak, to the oppressed. It's given to slaves in Egypt against the most powerful force in the world. Toni Morrison, who's probably the greatest writer in American history, you could disagree with me, you'd just be wrong, and you'd have to get over yourself, but you'd be wrong, right? Toni Morrison, the greatest writer in American history, said it like this. If we only look at the world as a brutal game, when we bump into the mystery of a tree-shaped scar, there seems to be such a thing as grace, such a thing as beauty, such a thing as harmony, all of which are wholly free and available to us. So from Tony, we learn that grace isn't just freely given by God, but grace is actually available to all of us. We keep it going. The third person I want to quote is a writer by the name of Anne Lamott, and she says it like this. I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave it 
where it found us. So we learn that grace is from God. We learn that grace is freely given. We learn that grace is available to all. But we also learn that grace is a mystery. We do not know how God loves us. We just know that he loves us. We do not know how God transforms us. We just know that when we interact with his grace, it transforms us. We do not know and cannot perfectly describe what it means to follow God for decades upon decades upon decades. But at any point, we can stop and say, God, thank Thank you for making me more and more like your son by your grace. And the last one is from Aeschylus. Now, I'm going to sound really learned, but I got to confess, I only learned about Aeschylus from Bobby Kennedy. You see, on the day that Martin Luther King was shot and killed, Bobby Kennedy was actually campaigning to be president. And his, 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 um, his advisors all around him said, uh, 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 Bobby, um, <laughs> Yeah, Dr. King was killed. Like, people are rioting everywhere. You probably should just keep it in tonight. And yet he went before, and he gave probably a five-minute speech that I think is probably the greatest political speech ever. And the reason it is is because it introduces Aeschylus, who I had no idea who he was, but apparently he's the father of Greek tragedy. He's the father of drama. If you like anything that's considered drama, thank Aeschylus. For what was fascinating is that Kennedy was able to unite those people in Indianapolis, and it was one of the few places in the country that there wasn't riot on the night King was shot. And what he did is he drew upon his own experience of losing someone he loves to talk about someone they love. And when he quoted Aeschylus, he said this, he who learns must suffer. Yet even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart. And in our own despair, against our own will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. Now, Aeschylus is Greek, so this is the tragic understanding of awful, not meaning bad as we do it in the modern setting, but meaning full of awe. So now we learn that the grace of God is free. The grace of God is available. The grace of God is ours. The grace of God is a mystery, but the grace of God is full of awe. What is grace? Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, which we read earlier. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages to come, he might show you what? The incomparable riches of his grace expressed how in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's eureka. He made all the world, yet when he made humans, he stopped and said, wow, I done good. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. Why? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What is God's grace? It is the engine by which he has saved us. What is God's grace? It's what's available to us through Jesus Christ. What is God's grace? It's the one that doesn't just save us, but has changed our entire eternal destiny. What is God's grace? But Christ Jesus revealed to us. What is God's grace? But our gift from God to give to our world. When I thought about grace, 
and how do we preach about what is grace and what God calls us to do with grace, I couldn't help but think of this passage. John 7, 53 to 8, 11, it's a very familiar passage, but what some people don't know is that this is also a very scandalous passage. You know, when I was first reading the Bible as a kid, it, it used to have a dotted line, you know, and it'd be like, do, 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 and it'd be an inscription. And usually the inscription were at the bottom of your Bible, and none of us would really read those, right? But this was actually like in the text, and you're just like, what's going on here? You see, the scandal is that this passage doesn't appear in the very earliest manuscripts. So people have been debating this for thousands of years now. There's some people who say that, like, we know the story happened, we just don't know where it fits. So there's some writers and some Bible translations who put it as like a couple of verses in Luke, a couple of verses in John. There's some people who don't put it in. And then there's some people who put it in with a dot, dot, dot and say, we think it goes here. But where does it go? You see, part of the transition is because this story is scandalous for so many reasons. Part of what they were worried about wasn't that the story happened, but that they didn't trust that we can interpret it right. Some of the things they were worried about was that people would read this story and be like, huh, God just doesn't care about sin. Or, huh, Jesus just doesn't respect the law. So part of the scandal was like, how do we put this in so that people would get it and understand it? Because here's the thing about John 7 and 8. If you pull out this story, it seems to flow so much easier and so much better. You know, it just seems that it would fit better without it. Because in John 7, Jesus is in the temple, and he's preaching, and people are like, who is this guy? They're intrigued. They're wondering. They want to know more. But by the time you get to the end of John 8, the scene has changed. It's now a darker Jesus. Some of the harshest words that Jesus says in all of Scripture is found in John 8. He has such hits, hits for the people like, you think you know God, but you actually don't. He has such hits as, I am from God, believe me, or go to hell. He has some hits like, you know what, you like Abraham and you call him your father. I am greater than Abraham. He has such hits as, you want to kill me. That's only because you belong to your father, the devil. So how does Jesus go from an intriguing young prophet prospect that everyone wants to be around to the guy who's commanding us to hell by not believing in him. What happened? And I think that what happened actually best explains why this story belongs. Because the story represents the change in mood that goes from Jesus exalted to Jesus being threatened to be stoned. Because here's the thing I've learned in my 36 years. Sometimes we know stuff, but we don't really know it until we know it. Sometimes you might think something, but you don't really think it unless you experience it. Because what happens in this story is that something has happened to Jesus to make him see. Because Jesus before this might have thought that the people were more obsessed with the world around them. But after this story, he knows it. Jesus might have thought that people were more obsessed with fitting in with their world, but after this story, Jesus knows it. And it's such a stark reminder to us. We make fun of middle schoolers or high schoolers for image problems, but yet we as adults are still obsessed with fitting in with this world. We're so obsessed with the world's values lighting up with our own. We're so obsessed with the world says this is right, so it must be because the masses say it's right. But yet the road to heaven belongs and remains narrow. 
The door remains Jesus Christ as the only door. So it's not just a middle school problem. It's not just a high school problem. It's an adult problem. When we're looking to the world for the values outside of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus learns. He might have thought that the people were obsessed with the world. After they interact with this woman, Jesus knows they're obsessed with the world. He might have thought that maybe they just want to fit into their world around them. But after this interaction, Jesus now knows it. N.T. Wright says this, the reason this story belongs here is because it's not a coincidence that Jesus is interacting with a crowd that wants to stone a woman, and yet at the end of John 8, the crowd wants to stone him. Jesus also, though, and I think this is the greatest thing in John. In the book of John, the disciple who knew Jesus best, probably his best friend, he's consistently asking these questions. Who is Jesus but the King and the Messiah? Who is Jesus but the Word become flesh? Who is Jesus but the light of the world? Who is Jesus but the resurrection and the life? Who is Jesus but the King and the Messiah? But one thing kings and messiahs were supposed to do was to show wisdom. So John looks at this story and he places it here to show that Jesus not only is known that his people care more about the world than him, but to show that Jesus has wisdom as the king and the Messiah. And the test to give Jesus has less to do with sin than people trying to be right. Does Jesus ignore the law? No, he just chooses grace. The stage is set. If you go back to the scene, you have the, the stage is set. There's a lady who's caught in adultery. And even as a kid, I thought this was tricky because I don't have the, the best explanation of, you know, like, what does it mean to be caught in adultery? You could go down a rabbit trail on that. But usually it takes two people. And it's interesting that they only accuse the woman. Is it interesting Or is it just a reminder of the power and privilege that we have? That we get to pick who the victims are. That we get to pick who the oppressed are. That we get to pick how we're right and they're wrong. They could have brought the person she was caught in adultery with because they technically, according to the law that they were citing, were both liable for death for adultery. But they only brought the woman. Jesus might know that his people are liking the world, but now he's experiencing that his people are obsessed with being like the world. They bring her before him and her alone. It leads some commenters to say, you know what? Maybe the guy she was caught in adultery was also part of the ruse. We do not know. Some commenters said that the reason they brought her to adultery is because maybe they all had relationships with her too. We don't know. But I think it's very, very striking that when accusers come, they pick someone they perceive as weak, someone they know as marginalized, someone they know that society shouldn't care about. And it's this reminder to us that accusers pray. But if we're going to be people of grace, it's not just about standing with victims. It's not just about praying for victims. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers. That's nice. It's about doing what Jesus did. And we'll go through that in the passage. They bring this woman adulterer because they feel superior. They feel as though she's a woman who would care about her. She's an adulterer who would care about her. She's the least of these in our culture. We are men. We have the the say here who would care about her. 
but Jesus Christ. And after they bring her in front of him, they set this trap. And some of us see the trap, the, the kind of like the, 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 the first level of the trap is easy to see. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has come, he's set to fulfill the law. But Jesus now has to answer a question, are you willing to say that we shouldn't follow the law of Moses? That's what they're quoting here. And the irony about this law of Moses is that not only should the woman be stoned, but the other person in the adultery should be stoned. And here's the other one I just found out. If they were wrong, they, the accusers, should be what? Stoned. But only the woman is on trial. They try to put Jesus in a corner regarding the law of Moses. You, prophet, what are you going to do with the law? But here's the secondary trap. You see, some things we forget is that we remember that it's a Christmas, but then we forget it through the rest of the Gospels. The people of Israel are still under the yoke of Rome. They're still under the power of Rome. And the secondary trap is that Rome had actually banned stoning. If, unless you could prove that it was a temple violation, it was a violation of your, your faith and law, Rome banned stoning. So Jesus was in a corner two ways because if he goes against the law of Moses, he's not a real prophet. If he commands that she should be stoned, Rome is going to come after him. And if he commands that she should be stoned, the people who knew him as the lover of sinners, the one who welcomed everyone in, they will turn on him. So you see the levels of trap that's going on here. And as a kid, I was so obsessed with, you know, what is Jesus writing on the ground? But if you understand all these different dynamics, you realize that maybe he's just taking a breath. Or maybe the shock of it all, you know? When somebody really lets you down, somebody you love, somebody you admire, when they let you down, it's a different kind of pain, isn't it? And sometimes you just got to like let the pain almost like hit you. And you're just like, wow, that just happened. Maybe Jesus is going through some of that. But he stoops down and he starts to write. And because we're human, we want to know, what is he writing? And some people think, you know what he did? He started listing the commandments. Or he started listing the, the, the laws that these people might have violated. He started listing. We do not know what he wrote. And I thought it was funny when Kevin was talking about, you know, like yelling and then coming closer and closer to Barb. It's the same thing that happens in the scene, right? Like they're accusing. They're like, she should be stoned. She should be stoned. He's like, excuse me a second. Just scribbling away. And like maybe they didn't think he heard them. So they're like, no, seriously, she should be stoned. What are you going to do? Jesus stoops down to write. But when he stands up, he takes a risk. And it's a reminder to us what we do with marginalized people is that if we're going to share the grace of God, we got to be willing to take risks. And the risk that Jesus takes is astronomical here. We sometimes read this story and be like, well, he's God. Obviously, it's going to work out. But the risk that Jesus takes is bold. You know, I, I used to read that, and I was like, when I was a kid, I used to read this. I'm like, yeah, tell him, Jesus. But if you listen to what he says, and you know human nature a little bit more, you realize how dangerous it is, right? He says, <laughs> let anyone who's without sin throw the first stone. All it took was one person without self-awareness or one person who just wanted to kill her anyway. All it took was one person. You realize the risk he's making here. This is a crowd. This is an angry mob. And his solution is, yeah, 
Whoever feels like they've never committed sins, you throw the rock. And I don't know about you, but sometimes we do things without thinking. Sometimes we do things without knowing the consequences. Sometimes we do things just because we feel like it. Jesus makes this risky decision. But the reason he makes the risky decision is because he gets up from the ground and he stands between the accusers and the accused. And I think perhaps when we think about the grace of God to the marginalized, to the weak, maybe that's where we should be. If we're going to take risks, maybe that's where we should be. And if you know anything about warfare, you know that it's usually better to be on the side that's going to win. God bless America. If you know anything about warfare, though, you know that when there's two sides, the worst place to be is where? In the middle. But yet that's what Jesus calls us to do when it comes to people being oppressed. Jesus stands between the accusers and the accused, and he looks them in the eye and he says, let he without sin throw the first stone. And then he stoops down and starts writing again, waiting for the Spirit to do its work. And one by one, praise God for the old folk, because they have more self-consciousness than some of the young folks in the story. When Jesus says that, they hear it, they feel it. And one by one, the old walk off then the middle age, and finally the young ones. And what's left is the accused and her Savior. And Jesus stands up again, and he says to her, where are those who have condemned you? And she says, I don't see anyone, sir. And then he says something that should change how we understand grace. Because for most of us, grace is just about the love that we get from God, the pardon from our sins. But he doesn't just say, I do not condemn you. He says, go and sin no more. Grace is more complicated than pardon for your sins. Jesus does not condemn her then. But what does happen to Jesus in a few chapters? Jesus is not giving grace. It might be free for us but it cost him his life. Jesus isn't just pardoning her because he wants her to be off scot-free. He knows that he's going to have to pay the price for her sins. Yet he still sets her free. But when he sets her free, he says, my grace says you are to go and sin no more. What is grace but God setting us free? What is grace but God redeeming us? What is grace but God restoring us? What is grace but God standing before our accusers and even Satan himself and said, I will take care of it. They can be redeemed. They now belong to me. What is grace but God's free, available, mysterious gift for us? My sisters and brothers, by grace you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. The God of this universe so loved you that he came to show you how to live to please God. The God of this universe so loved you that he gave grace free to you 
but at the cost of his own pain and suffering and dying on a tree. The God of this universe so loved you that he descended even into the pits of hell. The God of this universe so loved you that when he was resurrected on the third day, he just wanted you to know that death has been defeated. Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ Jesus brings the victory that sets us all free. The God of this universe so loves you that he's changed your eternal destiny forever. We spend so much time obsessed with the world that we see and the situation that we're in, and we forget that forever has been changed. You belong to Jesus forever. You're sitting right now in the heavenly realms with him. Jesus has bought you at the price of himself, but to set you free. By grace, you have been saved. By grace through faith, you now belong to him. And when I think about us as a church, and when I think about this idea of what does it mean to be a grace-based church, it's us saying, God has graced us, we will grace our world. We have been graced to grace. We have been graced to grace. All of us who follow Jesus, we have been graced to grace. Philip Yancey tells a story about C.S. Lewis. It's one of my favorite stories. I read this almost 20, or oh, over 20 years ago. That's scary. Um, read this a long time ago. And it's in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He talks about this, this conference of, of all the, 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 it was supposed to be a conference of, of comparable world religions, right? It was, a, it was very, you know, inter-religion and into all that. Everyone's coming there. And they started talking. And before Lewis got there, there's this argument that bubbled up from the floor. And the argument was like, but honestly, what's so different about Christianity? You know, and one person got up and says, like, the resurrection, you know, and another person got up and be like, actually, I mean, your version of resurrection is a little different, but other faiths have that too, you know, and another person got up and they said, the incarnation, and another person got up and was like, yeah, again, your version is a little different, but, but other faiths got that too, and they were stumped. And Lewis comes in because he's like me. He's late to everything. You know, he shows up, you know, and they're just like, hey, Clive Staples Lewis, you know, friends call him Jack. Hey, Jack. What's so different about Christianity? And without even taking his jacket off, hanging on the thing, he goes, oh, that's easy, grace. And they're like, wait, what? <laughs> grace. The idea that God so freely loves us, no strings attached. The idea that God's love is unconditional. Every other faith wants you to earn the love of God. Wants you to earn your place. Wants you to earn your reward. God's love, God's grace is free. That's what sets us apart. So when we say we are grace to grace, and if God's love is free, and we're the only ones through the power of the Holy Spirit can give God's grace to the world, the question becomes, what are you doing? We are grace to grace. How are you living to give grace? Jesus risked by standing up for this woman. But his risk is a costly grace. So many of us settle for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a cheap grace. So many of us settle for, you know, God loves you, and that's what love is, so everything is okay. That's not love. That's also not grace, as Jesus defined it. Grace is not everything is okay. Grace is not God finding you how he met you and leaving you that way. Grace is all a welcome but all are welcome to be transformed by Jesus Christ. Grace is transformation. Grace 
is I do not condemn you, but go and sin no more. Grace is standing between the accuser and the weak. Grace is setting people free. But grace is also shuv. And shuv is that idea of redemption. Is that idea, and I always give you the example, right? We're in Harrisburg. If you're trying to get to Pittsburgh and you go the wrong way on the turnpike and you're in Philadelphia, grace and shuv isn't saying, oh, I'm not in Pittsburgh. Grace and shuv and redemption is turning the car around, getting on the other side of the turnpike and going to Pittsburgh. God says, go and sin no more. That's grace. It's not enough for you to be like, I'm in Philadelphia. I should be in Pittsburgh. Turn the car around. Get on the right road. Get to Pittsburgh. I don't know what you do there, but get there. <laughs> Forgive me, I don't know. When I, think, <laughs> when I think about us being a grace-based church, my prayer for us is that we can continue to be a community that people feel at home with. That we can continue to be a people, a church, a family, where people say, these are my people. We can continue to be a place where people come as they are. So many people think, I got to clean myself up before I can walk into the doors of the church. So many people think that, you know, I'm never going to go to church because all they do is condemn me there. So many people have so many ideas of what church is. What if we committed right now to say, let us be grace of God to them? Because that grace might introduce them to the love of God, and that love of God may not get them in these doors, but it might get them into the kingdom, and that's okay too, isn't it? But we also have to be a people who are con <laughs> committed to shuv, who are committed to a God who transforms, who are committed to a God who not only stoops down and meets the woman where she's at, but stands up sets her free, and says, go and sin no more. Our God still transforms in 2020. Our God still redeems in 2020. So come as you are, but submit all of yourself to Jesus Christ. Come as you are, but know that the goal isn't to be the best version of yourself. It's to be made in the image of Jesus Christ. My prayer for us is that we can continue to be a people who say, by grace we've been saved, by grace through faith, we are here. This grace has been given to me is for my world. This is our DNA. This is who we are. This is what we should be reproducing. That when our world says, I feel unloved, we are the grace of God. That when our world says, I'll never be good enough, we are the grace of God. That when our people are chained by regrets and bad choices, we are the grace of God. That if people are enslaved by the past, we are the grace of God that says, whereby the grace of God, so go I. I've made it through, through God's love and his grace and his mercy, and you can too. My goal and our DNA is to not just appreciate the grace of God, but to now go out and grace our world. We're going to close our service by singing a song, Lover of My Soul. This is actually one of my favorite songs in the world. Um, it, it's just a beautiful song. And one of the reasons I love this song is this, 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 this reminder. What we lack, God is full of. Where we're broken, God is whole. Where we're doubting, God is sure. 
And it's this call to us to simply trust Jesus because he is indeed the lover of our soul. I'd like to invite up the intercessors. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. Any pastors in the room come up, we'd pray for you too. But as we sing this song, may you be reminded that you're not defined by what you lack. Your God is full. You're not defined by how you're broken. Your God makes things whole. You're not defined by where you doubt. Your God is sure, and he loves you so deeply. Let's stand and sing together.